Welcome to Toby Haydock's Who's Round, which could be listened to all over the world, from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, via Plymouth? So, well, we've, we've, we've walked all around Guildford to try and find somewhere quiet, so if there's any noise in the background, this is as good as it gets, everybody. And I'm going to uh, ask... We, we're high up, though, so no blood-sucking stones are going to be able to get to us. So I'm going to ask my uh, latest victim to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Aha. My name is Nicholas McArdle, sometimes known as Nick. Uh, and I did a Doctor Who way back when I played a character called De Vries in an episode called The Stones of Blood. You, yes, you played a villainous, uh, a villainous character opposite Tom Baker for director yeah. Daryl Blake. So do you remember how you got the part? Well, I think I, I had... Well, I know. I worked with Daryl Blake when he was on the design team at the BBC, and I'd met him several times, and we talked. And then I learned that he was going to take, I think it was then, the BBC director's course, which he took, and eventually they started using him as a director, and he was asked to direct, certainly, this particular adventure of Doctor Who, and I got asked. It could have been because we'd already met and worked together in different capacities, or it may have had nothing to do with it. I really don't know. Um... And you're one of the few... I don't know, you won't know this, I'm sure you won't, because it's the sort of thing only idiots like me know, is you are one of the few people in Doctor Who to smoke a cigarette. You have, yes. You have cigarette and sherry. I know. I mean, that's, that's as debauched as Doctor Who ever got. He was a real villain, wasn't he? <laughs> but, of course, it wasn't frowned on in those days, well, certainly not as much. And, yes, bearing in mind it is ostensibly children's television, I did play it back a few years ago, because I've got a tape of it somewhere, and... Uh, I was a bit dismayed to see myself smoking this cigarette. At the time, I thought nothing of it. I thought he, he would. He was that kind of guy, mm. you know. He was the villain, or one of the villains. And he, of course he'd smoke, and he'd have a drink. And nobody objected. In fact, somebody, probably else, somebody else probably suggested the drink. I don't think I would have done. Yeah, the, sher- the sherry's in the script, I think. Is yeah. it? Oh, right, that's what it must have been then, because I can't remember. I've only got a tape of it, and at the moment I don't have a working uh, VHS player. I've got two, but neither of them are working at the moment, so I couldn't replay it the other day, because I've not had it transferred or not seen the DVD version of it. Ah, because unfortunately the DVD version is in a box set with the whole season, so mm. whereas most people can just spend a tenner on a disc, you've got a £60 box set to That's buy. That's probably why I haven't got a DVD on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, I mean, you have to act opposite um, Tom Baker, who was at the height of his sort of dominance of Doctor Who, so uh, you must yes. have had your work cut out for you in that regard. No, the only real difficulty was he's taller than I am. <laughs> so you find yourself walking along playing a scene and you've got to look up which is always a bit diminishing isn't it mm. but apart from that I have no complaints at all uh, he was I thought he was fun I had met him briefly once or twice as it were in passing I suppose here and there or in a recording studio and that kind of thing so I, I knew him enough to say hello Tom you know um, so there were, there were no problems it, it was great fun I enjoyed working with him and I don't know if you'll know this other clip. I think it was a scene that was cut where um, your 
big plan when you've been betrayed by your, your alien is to escape to... Can you remember? You, you, no, I can't remember. You, you, she, I on, think your, you your cohort says, we could always get away. We could, we could go to Plymouth. Of uh, course. Where else? <laughs> yes. And that has beca- had a little bit of a footnote in Doctor Who history because yes. the League of Gentlemen, who are great fans yes. of Doctor Who, oh, right. there's a moment when Tubbs and Edward in their shop mm. are talking, because, of course, they only ever have been in the village. Yes. Uh, she, she finds a map. And yes. she goes, look at all these lines, look, we could go to Plymouth. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is as a result of, uh, of, of your scene in The Stones oh, of Blood. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> because there's something rather sweet about yes. the very notion of you can escape this arch-alien villainess if, oh, you, yes. if you go as far as Plymouth. <laughs> well, perhaps you can. <laughs> <laughs> so what do, you, do you have many memories of the, of the filming itself? Um, not terribly specific ones. It was a while ago. So I can't remember huge amounts. And, of course, at least one scene was cut due to the fact that the management saw it before transmission and were horrified by its reality, apparently. Do you know about that? Yes, yes, it was, it was too too terrifying. Yes, it was... Dare I mention what it was about? Yeah. Will that ruin the plot? No, no, that's fine. If anyone is listening to this who hasn't watched it at least seven times, they're not proper <laughs> Doctor Who fans. Well, it's when de Vries and his wife, I believe, are killed... And so we, we died wonderful deaths, uh, with lots of acting. And when it was transmitted, the scene wasn't there. And a few weeks later, not, not long after, I ran into Daryl at the BBC. I was doing something else, so was he. And I said, what happened to the death scene? And he said, the management saw it before it was transmitted and said it was far too frightening even to be watched from behind the sofa. For children. So there you are. You can be too good. <laughs> I suppose it was a sort of compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and can you, uh, can you account for why Doctor Who is... is uh, I mean, I assume you still get letters and things like that. It's just, Occasionally, yes. Can you yes, I had a recent one about this episode, yeah. Mm. Why, why it is something... Is it, do, does science fiction appeal to you? Can you get why Doctor Who is celebrated 50 years? It does appeal to me, to, depending on what, what sort of science fiction it is. I think it's changed. It's always changed its coat. We all know about that over the years. And so, therefore, every time that happens, it's got to take on a new lease of life. Still fundamentally the same hero, but everyone accepts he looks different. He has this power to do it. In fact, it's a necessity, isn't it? Uh, it's something to do with being a time lord from Gallifrey and... Uh, and I think that's part of it. But also, they've had some tremendously good writers who always take it on a stage further or a stage differently. And I think the last few years, the redevelopment, if you like, of Doctor Who, some of it's been truly amazing. The imagination of the writers, and the designers for that matter, has been extraordinary. And it, it grips me. I sit down to watch it and think, oh, yes, another episode, be nice to see it, and more often than not, my sense of disbelief is suspended completely, and I get really excited and can't actually wait to see what happens next, if it's a serial type story, mm. they aren't all, as you know. I think, I think it's down to skill, the skill of the people who put it together, and often it's extremely well directed, and you know, the, the design, the music is tremendous now, and I think you have the whole Welsh 
symphony orchestra <laughs> at your disposal, if you like, and everyone does a wonderful job. If it didn't succeed, I'd be brimming surprised. Well, uh, often the cliche about Doctor Who is that it was a bit um, condescending towards its its female stars until it came back and was uh, mm-hmm. was was reimagined. But you and Tom Baker were in the minority in your story because pretty much everyone else was a woman because you had That's Beatrix right. Layman on her last That's job right. and Susan Engel yeah. and Elaine Ives Cameron and Mary Tam, of course. So um, extraordinary. Remember any of cast. those ladies? I mean, Beatrix Layman was oh, a bit of a legend, wasn't she? Oh yes, very much so. I, I I knew who she was obviously long before I turned up at the uh, rehearsal room because we do rehearse it, or we used to in those days before we got anywhere near a camera, you know because in those days I think we still did on the whole the good old BBC system good old television system, not just BBC that um, you did a certain number of scenes in studio, you did outdoor scenes and sometimes other scenes on film and then it was all married together at the end of the day You know, uh, I think it's a little, I won't say less complicated than that but a little different nowadays do you, do you think, uh, and it's a question I always ask, I, I suspect there's a drinking game with this podcast where I ask the same, but I, I, I often, because actors often lament those days of rehearsal going, um, mm. and, and the fact that television is now made more like film, yes. but is that lamentation, uh, is it based on anything that the audience would notice? Do the audience get a shorter deal because actors don't have a lovely week to rehearse and get to know each other, or is that an actor's luxury that, that is just missed? I never regard rehearsal as a luxury under any circumstances. And yes, I've been rolled up in front of a camera before we've even met <laughs> the actor I'm going to play the scene with and, and done all that. It's not, if it's as bad as that, it's not fun. And therefore, all you're doing is to try and be as convincing as possible and not forget the damn words. Now, even a little bit of rehearsal can double the effectiveness of a scene in my opinion, and save the cameraman a lot of wasted time. Simple as that. I've done enough filming and television and all those things to know that this is simply a fact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, okay, it saves money. Maybe, not necessarily, is my answer. <laughs> well, I like this. Well, take us back, um, because... As, as you discussed, you've got quite a few television credits. Uh, we discussed this before we started yeah. uh, recording. Uh, so what had made you... Was it, Were you always going to be an actor? What was your background and, and what led you to, to the theatre and television? Oh, well, uh, let me see. Yes, I, I had always been taken to the theatre fairly often as a child. It started with pantomimes and all the rest of it, which I must admit I did enjoy very much. My first stage appearance was at the age of six, at I think it was called the Hippodrome in Birmingham, when during the communal song towards the end of the show, Norman Wisdom, no less, came down, took me by the hand and led me on stage in front of a full house to take part in the song that comes down from the flies in the theatre and everyone has to sing it. And I stood on this stage with the smell of the size, I find out, which is, uh, which is the scenery, uh, and bright lights. I couldn't see anybody in the audience and I was knocked out by the whole experience. And the disease began then at the age of six and it's Norman Wisdom's fault. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you're, I mean, because to listen to you now, but you're, you are a, a, a model of RP, but your roots are in Scotland. Some of them, yes. Yes. Uh, I didn't know you knew that. 
Uh, well, I like to do a little research. Ah, well done. At least I can do yes, for your time. Yes, I spent, as a child, and actually I was... When I, I say I saw this pantomime in Birmingham, I did, because we'd gone down to see some aunts of mine who lived there. But by then, I was living in uh, Scotland, on the west coast, uh, on the coast of the Gerloch, in an area now known, I think, generally as the submarine base. <laughs> but it was, it's on the Gerloch, and it's kind of north, northwest of Glasgow, and uh, in a deep sea loch. And that's where we went to live shortly after the end of the war, uh, and where I began to speak like a Scot. And then we moved subsequently, a few years later, to Glasgow, where I also went to school. And by the time I was, I don't know, about 13, 14, I don't think I was distinguishable from anybody who wasn't Scottish. Um, did I say that correctly? Yes. Yes, right. <laughs> and I had a wonderful, mellifluous, Glaswegian accent and when my parents eventually decided to come south as we say from there again I realised that nobody spoke like me I went to school in England in my mid-teens and I got sort of mocked slightly because my accent was completely different from anyone else in the school so I thought well, there's only one way out of this and being a, by this time an actor by instinct almost I'd done plays at school in Scotland and all that kind of thing I thought I can speak both ways so I started to do that and when I was at school I'd speak more or less I suppose as I'm speaking now because I went to school in Hertfordshire originally and uh, then I could also and I, we still retain Scottish friends and relatives and all the rest of it and when I was with them, I tended to relapse back into Scottish. So I've always been able to do both. And as I got older, I could do one or two different types of both, both in England and Scotland. And I've been able to use that as an actor in both countries. Great. Which meant that I've done, yes, a lot of work in Scotland. Nobody's ever shouted obscenities at me for not being Scottish. And in England... It's got to a certain point occasionally when casting directors have said, no, he couldn't possibly play that middle-class English part because he's Scottish, which annoyed me enormously because actually there are quite a lot of Scottish actors who could do that. Mm. Why should you assume that because they're Scottish they can't do anything else? Or vice versa, for that matter. Well, it is called acting. As it well, is called, it? exactly. <laughs> that's what annoys me so much. And if you can't do it well, then you won't get the part. It's as simple as that. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah, as well, a friend of mine who never stops working, when he gets asked how old he is, he goes, How old do you want me to be? Because yeah. the minute you say 60, if they're after a 50 year old, they go, Well, he can't possibly play a 50 year old. Whereas if you don't tell them, they don't know. It's nonsense. I, 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 when you go for castings sometimes, certain types of castings, you're asked to put your age down on a form. I have never yet done it. I absolutely refuse to do it. I just miss it. Because, yes, you're right, it can cause simple prejudice. And I'm not having it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so and of course, you, I mean, starting in, in theatre and rep theatre, those were the days yeah. where, where, you know, the actor playing King Lear might have been tw 28. Absolutely. And come from almost anywhere. <laughs> That's right. He could even, even have been Australian or <laughs> something. Because there were, in those days, certainly, you know, Australian, young Austra Australian and New Zealand actors and actresses came here for two or three years because there wasn't enough theatre where they lived. And they learned their craft here, and some of them weren't half bad either. Many of them went home, but not all. 
<laughs> and so how did you how did you go about making uh, acting your profession? Ah, uh, I did it quite conventionally, really. When I left school, uh, I went deliberately to drama school. Prior to that, I was convinced it was a good idea. I went to a, a university college of London where I learned to be a teacher of drama. Because in those days, drama was an up-and-coming subject in schools, in England anyway. So I did that course first, qualified, and then I went straight to drama school, Guildhall School of Music and Drama, and tried to learn properly to be an actor. I'd had a bit of fun because my local theatre was at Watford, which was the Palace Theatre Watford, and the manager, in fact the actor-manager of that theatre, was someone no less than Jimmy Perry, who became extremely famous later. Yeah. Do I need to tell you about uh, what? Uh, no, uh, I don't, do I? David Croft and Jimmy Perry. <laughs> Absolutely. Dad's army and he gave me a chance to work backstage in school holidays or weekends or whatever, and I was very useful. And once I even went on and did my first part in a professional production I think there were six words in the line I had. It was maybe it's another apartment in an American accent. How about that? <laughs> so w what I'm trying to say is that Jimmy Perry gave me a tremendous opportunity to find out what it was like backstage, admittedly, in a professional theatre, working with professional actors, some of whom were very experienced, some of whom were well-known, some of whom were not. but all worth knowing and working with. So it sort of seasoned me up. And by the time I went to drama school, I felt quite at home, not too self-conscious, because that's the big bugbear when you go to drama school, I gather, is that you've got to get rid of yourself mm -hmm. before you can start acting and remembering the words properly. So, yeah. Strip yourself down of... That's right, yeah. Mm. And, um, and you started working... Upon graduation, fairly steadily? Yes, pretty well, quite quickly, actually. I was given a nice opportunity by the then manager and, and uh, person in charge of the Salisbury Playhouse, Reggie Solberg, famous Solberg brothers. The other one rang, ran the Birmingham Theatre. And I started there, did nine months there, small parts, bit of stage management, that kind of thing. And then I went on to Lincoln Theatre Royal, where I remained for two years. I was asked to stay. <laughs> Great. Well, my contracts were renewed. And uh, we did, obviously, played the theatre in Lincoln, and we'd, we had a touring company, and we were all members of both. And we'd run off to places like, uh, let me see, Scunthorpe and um, Rotherham, one or two other places, and, and take our productions there, play them for probably the maximum of a week and then we'd go back to the Lincoln Theatre Royal and play it there for a week, two weeks depending, I think it was mostly two weeks there um, so got you lots of experience doing lots of parts, often more than one at a time uh, nothing like it nothing like it to get you used to the whole thing and then uh, that came to an end as, as it always does I mean perfectly normally I'd been there for two years it was enough not only for me but for them I think and uh, then I went on to where did I go to Liverpool Playhouse after that and so and so it went on like that you know 
And you, I mean, when you start doing television, you you you, you seem to have. You, I mean, one of the early credits that you find on the internet for you is the uh, uh, the broaden your mind with Graham Gardner and Tim Brooke Taylor. Oh, yes. And so you work with those, and you think, well, that's quite a couple. But then, as your career goes on, you seem to work with almost every important television comedian that there was. It was a kind of spin-off from that, but. Um, there's two stories, really, I suppose. One is, how did I end up working with Tim Brooke Taylor, Graham Gardner and Bill Oddie and the lovely Joe Kendall? Um, that was the product of an accident. And when I say an accident, I mean somebody else's accident. I was rehearsing a pantomime down at Canterbury. And one of the actors had a terrible car accident. The roads were very icy and he skidded, came off the road, hurt himself badly. Uh, first day of rehearsal, I think it was, and was too badly hurt to carry on. So they needed a replacement and a, for a comic part, obviously. And Tim Brooke Taylor happened to be um, available for some reason. And I'd seen him on television, but that was nothing to do with me. And uh, he came along to play, I think it was Idol Jack. He was a laddie, I think his pantomime was. Very complicated. But anyway, uh, cut a long story short, he joined the company... He and I had quite a few scenes together, and we sh shared a dressing room by sheer chance. And I'd seen some of his early television shows, you know, the sort of ex-university comedy th things. We got on very well, and when the pantomime came to an end, he gave me a ring, and he said, would you come and have lunch? He said, I'm, I'm, I actually want to ask you about getting married, because I want to get married. He said, and she's a lovely girl, but I know you are married. You can tell me about it. So I said, all right, Tim. So I turned up in London, and we had lunch together. He probably paid the bill. Um, and then in the middle of lunch, we did talk about marriage. And then suddenly he said to me, uh, by the way, I'm doing another television series with Graham Gardner and Bill Oddie and so on and so forth. He said, we need somebody else. And I know you and I work together, so I wonder if you don't mind, he said, but I've actually put your name forward to the producer. Don't mind, I thought to myself. Nobody ever does that for anybody. <laughs> I said, no, 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 they don't mind at all. <laughs> no, that would be very interesting. And God bless him, it was more or less done. I had to go and meet the producer, which was the, turned out to be eventually very famous, Sydney Lotterby. Mm. And... Uh, he sort of said, well, yes, if you want him in it, I suppose that's fine. And the rest is history. But, of course, that was, I think, 13 episodes of a show, a lot of which was done in front of an audience. And that was another thing, because Tim knew I could work in front of an audience and get laughs, you know, if they were live and all the rest of it, which had helped, because he'd seen me do it before. <laughs> and uh, that's how it began. And I was in television. Good grief. Just like that. And that, I, I've always been eternally appreciative of that. It was very kind of him. I, he, he must have thought I was up to it, because otherwise he wouldn't have asked. But, uh, but that, that was it. That's how I began. And so that comedy was something that sort of always seems to have gone gone through everything, because mm. you've been uh, worked with Bird and Fortune, and you were Butterflies, and you did the film of Porridge, and All you worked with Marty Feldman. Yeah, that, so, yes. Loved working with Marty. But... After a while, the BBC, which was... It may still be, I'm not sure, because I don't know them anymore. Well, not recently. If you did comedy, you did comedy. If you did acting, drama, you didn't do 
comedy, unless it was dramatic comedy. BBC somehow latched onto the idea, I could do both. And that, of course, doubled the work, mm. which was wonderful. And uh, once I'd been cast by a, a director who already knew me, in fact, I'd, I'd worked with him at Salisbury when he was a director there, some good few years by this time before, he asked me to be in Colditz, so I did the second series of Colditz, all of them. Was that Peter Crugine? It was Peter Crugine, yeah. yes. And uh, after that, I was allowed to be in almost any drama that anyone wanted me to be into. <laughs> well, you've played, I think you've played every single, if they wanted to fill a police station oh, with God, every single yes. rank, I think you could be all of them, couldn't you? Yes, I think so. <laughs> Not to say I didn't enjoy some of it, especially shows like Softly Softly and Zed Cars. That, that was enormous fun to do, because mainly because of the casts. But uh, there came a time after a few years of, oh, let's get Nick McArdle to be the policeman. And as you say, any rank, you know, <laughs> any police force. I did actually say to my agent one day, can I not play any policeman, please, for a little while? And the agent said, but, 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 you're always being asked for. I said, oh, that's the trouble. I never play anything else if I'm not careful. It did work. I backed off policeman for a while. Then I was asked to play a Victorian police inspector who wore plain clothes, which I did do. And then I was allowed to do both again, mm -hmm. not always be a policeman. Because even casting directors get fixed ideas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's the easy, it can be the easy way out. Yeah. So I've been very fortunate, and after I'd sort of taken that little stand, I then was allowed to play all kinds of different parts. And, and that went on till relatively recently, really. Well, in Colditz, you mentioned that was a, was a great series, and you had a nice stint in that. Oh, yes. Um, with directors like Peter Krajine and yes. Vic Ritellis, who did one of these mm. interviews all the way from Australia, bless you. Oh, him. did he? Yeah. Mm. Um, so do you, have, do you have memories of making that show? Because I watched it oh. all recently. It's a terrific. It stands up still. Yes, it was rerun, wasn't it, on, on one of the Freeview channels, and uh, it's all on DVD now, I think. Yes. Um, it was my Christmas present. Ah, yes, how many episodes are there? There's a lot. Two, yeah, two series of about 13 each, so it's about 20, 26. 26, 27, something like that. Yes, that's right. Well, I was in half of them, that I know. Um, oh, I loved it, yes. It, it's the, strange, because we did rehearse quite a lot of the interior scenes on these bunk beds that they had in Colditz, and it was the only show I've ever worked on, and we did, you know, we spent three weeks on every episode, I think, so it was quite intensive. Um, and I had nightmares sometimes. I'd wake up thinking I was actually in Colditz, in one of these bunks. Now, that's never happened to me on any other production. I haven't dreamt about the production, but Colditz I dreamt about. It must have gone deep, because I, by the time we'd done a, a number of scripts, you thought, my God, you know, these guys were active men. They're cooped up. They had to watch it in case they did actually get killed, although the coldest regime wasn't too bad, and it was for officers only. Um, but uh, I've always remembered it. The cast were pretty damn good. I mean, what a cast. So it was lovely working with actors of all types, and one or two Americans, as you know. Although I do gather there were never any Americans actually in Coldest. Uh, Just help to secure a co-production deal that's, if you stick a couple That's in. right, that's right, that's <laughs> right. And, of course, the famous Robert Wagner was in it. Uh, and uh, David McCallum, who isn't really American, he's Scottish. Yeah, but he'd, he'd got cachet over but there. He'd got the cachet yeah. over there, that's right. And so on and so forth. Uh, 
no, I enjoyed it enormously in Bernard Hepter and people like that playing a most wonderful commandant. Uh, yes. <laughs> what can I say? Where would I start? Only that, by and large, big, big production, lot of, I suppose, potentially egotistical men in it, very little real rivalry, a lot of humour. Um, Jack Headley, I remember particularly well, very urbane as the senior British officer, who could play it off stage wonderfully well as well. <laughs> <laughs> and ju just occasionally, if anybody did get, I'm not mentioning any names, a little bit uppity, this rather upper-class voice would talk like that to them, and uh, yes, I understand. And it was rather like that, and we'd soon put it right. <laughs> because <laughs> I better not go on. <laughs> <coughs> I love Jack Headley. I think he's brilliant. Yes. Um, well, also in service, and this may be of interest to the, 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 those who listen um, with half an eye an ear on Doctor Who, is that you did Warship for the director Lenny Mayne. Oh, bless him. directed yes. a number of Doctor Who. Yes, that's right. I did a couple of Warships, different characters, completely different characters. Dear Lenny, yes, who I, I'm, I'm sad to say, you may know this, uh, was run down in the channel by a, a, a steamer of some kind when he was out in a boat with some friends, one or two actors, I gather. And dear Lenny, I don't think, was wearing a life jacket and did not return. No. No. No, lost at sea. Yes. Mm. Very sad. Nice man, good director. You know, what can you say? Left a lovely widow behind and... Ah. Well, look, I've already exceeded the half an hour. I said, so let's, let's, let's fly through some of this... This uh, mm. other stuff. I, I can't not mention you being in Twelfth Night with Alec Guinness and Ralph Richardson. Well, just in it, I think, is the answer. I'd done much bigger things than that. I mean, as much far as I was concerned sure. before. I'll always remember, though, uh, by this time I was a slightly more seasoned actor. I was possibly about 27 or 8 by this time. And uh, I walked into this rehearsal room, and down one end of it, I could see Sir Ralph Richardson. Alec Guinness, who I'd seen in a million films from the age of five upwards, talking to the director, whom I knew by sight. And this figure glanced down the room, saw me having come through the door, and I'd recognised him, and he came straight away almost down to the doorway, held out his hand, and said to me, How do you do? My name's Guinness. Very pleased to meet you as colleague to colleague. Well, I'd met quite a lot of actors in, in, by then. I nearly sort of fainted, really, because I thought, my God, you know, fancy taking the trouble to come and talk to somebody who's playing a tiny part. You've no idea, really, who they are, and you, you greet them like that. I thought, this guy's not only a good actor. <laughs> He's somebody you'd like to know. Class act. Yes, absolutely, yes. And there was one little incident which I don't think he'd mind me telling because he did it quite publicly in front of everyone else the director slightly apologetic towards him at one point a scene had gone slightly wrong and the director was saying well the camera was in the wrong place you see Sir Alec and so on and so forth to which Alex, Sir Alex replied no no dear boy he said I just don't know the bloody lines <laughs> uh, quite out loud and it was quite true he'd made a mistake and he wasn't going to have the director making excuses for him he's no don't know the lines I won't do it again if I can help it and I thought to be a star and behave like that is pretty damn good frankly mm. absolutely yes and he'd come across you know it was a, a 
a dull moment occasionally and we're waiting around and chat. So, yes, I had a lot of respect for him, even though I thought he was a good actor anyway in the first place. Well, along those lines, because it would be easy for me to go through any list of your credits, go, oh, you mm. worked with this actor and that actor. So, yes. So who, who do you pluck out as actors that you worked with who's, who you really sort of admired or, or, or at close quarters? You mean apart from comedians? Well, I must well, tell well, you about yeah. one or two comedians. Yes, because both. they're actors too. Of course. And I think my absolute favourite was probably Ken Dodd. Um, I did a small bit in a sketch for one of his shows at the beginning of a series... It made him laugh, and I don't think he was fooling around. And he said to me, the timing was good, he said, and it was dead right, it was really funny. He said, would you mind, this is another would you mind, like Tim Brooke Taylor, he said, would you mind if I suggested to the director, if you're free, of course, he said, uh, you do the rest of the series? I said, no, I wouldn't mind at all. <laughs> and thoroughly enjoyed I don't remember how many shows we did, but it was quite a few, uh, working with him. And he was the most generous, for a famous comedian, the most generous person to work with I've ever come across, almost. That's and how's, a... how's his timekeeping when he... Because famously, when he does stand-up, you know, yes. oh. you have to leave. Oh, well, yes, you had to <laughs> tell him to stop or put the lights out or something. But he does it deliberately. He doesn't care. He's a theatre comedian, really. And if the television studio was going to overrun, well, it was their business to tell him to stop. You know, they didn't have to pay overtime, but he'd go on and keep everyone happy for as long as they liked, because that's what he does. You worked with Frankie Howard as well? Yes, I did, yes, yes. Just did the one show, yes, that's right. And is it true that all the oohs and yeses were all as scripted as...? Well, I was quite surprised, yes. It, it's, most of what he does is scripted, including the ooh-ah mother and all the rest of it, misses and the rest of it. I was quite surprised about that. And if you got one wrong, he'd stop and say, I didn't do that properly. This was in rehearsal, obviously. That really surprised me. But yes, it was an actor learning his lines and trying to get them right. And then coming across as somebody was making it up as he went along, which apparently wasn't true. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> if you make it look easy, that's Absolutely, yes. And you've, you've worked with two... Um, Doctor Who's not in Doctor Who, at least uh, Peter Davison on All Creatures Great and Oh, yes, yes, yes. That was long before he was yes. Doctor Who, yes. That was fun, yes, yes. Somebody was asking me about that cause, uh, recently because they're writing a book. Our friend um, Oliver, yes. Put you us know in touch. him. Yes, I think that's he gave right. Me your he details. Did. That's right, probably did, yes. I think that's right. Yeah, that was fun. I was sorry I wasn't in it for a bit longer, but I wasn't, so no, it was one of those jobs. But it was fun, and uh, again, Lovely cast. I'll still watch an episode if it's going past me on a, on a Freeview channel at the moment, you know. Although the cast changed a bit over the years, but then it ran for so long, didn't it? Well, then Strath Blair was, uh, was Dave, well, an early job for David Tennant. Yes, that's right. Um, I think I was uh, in three quarters of those. Mm. Yes, something like that. Mm, all of it filmed in Scotland or studios in Glasgow, yes. And I played a, a fairly regular character called... What was he called? My goodness. You tell me. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. He was, uh, it'll come to me in a second. But yes, and I, I love doing that. Forbes? Yes, uh, Forbes. Forbes. That's right. right. Of course it was. The shopkeeper. Yes, that's right. And they built the most wonderful shop round a building that wasn't a shop up in Strathblair. Am I talking about Strathblair? That's the wrong. That's the title that's of the, the series. Yeah. That was Blair Athol. I beg your pardon. Yeah, that's right. And uh, big cast, 
and uh, I think there were what 20 odd episodes I don't mean they were all odd I mean there were 20 or more uh, loved that because I had to be in Scotland an awful lot of the time doing them and uh, mighty Andrew Keir absolutely I mean hard to sort of almost suggest who wasn't in it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes there must have been certain actors who, when that breakdown came through, were like, well, if I'm not in this, I'll be very annoyed. You know, I I'm a heavyweight a, Scottish I, actor. I know there were a few, <laughs> a few actors who were quite annoyed, yes. And uh, I, I being a, I was a hybrid, as you know, you know, and I think uh, possibly I was delighted to be asked to do it and, and loved working on it. Um, I think there was one or two mutterings about, well, he's a London actor, you know, why is he, why have we got a London actor in this? But uh, having said that, I'm not really a London actor either. No. You know. Well, so tell us about the move before we, before we bring this to, to an end, because I've, 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 oh, I've, I've used yeah. more time than I promised that I would. Um, we were talking before we started recording how the fact that you know you're, you're, you you sort of t- took a conscious decision to step away from television and you'd exhausted the police force and uh, all the well, sitcoms. Well, yes, and, that was sort of some time ago uh, before uh, I stepped away. But yeah. you've but you've been continued to be gainfully employed because of this wonderful voice that we can hear. So yes, I've got a bit of a cold at the moment. or had one, so I said sound a bit nasal. It doesn't always sound like that, folks. Um, as Spike Milligan would have said whom I also work with once. Yes, that's another matter. Um, yes, and I do a lot of audio books now, that kind of thing. Still do some miscellaneous voice work, because I have been doing that for two or three decades now, um, including anonymously, anonymously very often voicing film for Panorama, um, World in Action, good old Thames television, that sort of thing. Um, documentaries of one kind or another. Um, I did a whole series of World War, World War II, um, which was fascinating to do as, as a voice because it, the, the filming was, the, the film montage was so interesting and comprehensive. Lots of things. I don't know where to start, really. So I've been very fortunate. Uh, and as, you know, voice lots of commercials, radio ones, TV ones, you name it. So I've had a pretty broad career and a lot of people have helped along the way and been very kind and uh, and generous. Not necessarily with the fee, but <laughs> <laughs> but with the work, certainly. And as I said to my parents, you know, when they tried to stop me becoming an actor because they thought I'd, I'd never make a living, nobody ever did, you know, apparently, until my mother heard Dame Sybil Thorndike one day explaining how it is you have to be when you're an actor which slightly changed her mind. But uh, having said all that, I used to say to them, if I don't try, I'm going to regret it. Well, I tried, I made a living, and I don't regret it. Well, and 450 television credits, was it? As well, yes, uh, uh, at know, least. That, <laughs> I think that's a, that's a ballast to any CV. Yes. So, well, the only, the only two questions uh, remaining then as we've looked over a career that has no regrets, which is always nice, um, is the first one is you've kindly given your time for this particular engagement uh, for free because it is a a charitable endeavour. So what Mm. is the charity that you would like to benefit? Well, I I know the one that springs to mind immediately. Uh, I'll probably get the name wrong, so we'll have to check that. Okay, I can. Um, Because um, I've had a very close relative being treated by this organisation over the last 18 months 
and it would be the Royal Surrey Hospital Cancer Care Unit. Now that's its overall title, I've probably got it wrong, but I know it has a charitable side to it, and I think I'd like some of it to go to that. There are lots of other worthy charities, but this is a personal thing. Yeah, and it's about you, so you you choose the one that you you want to do. If that's, that's all right, yes. Absolutely. Uh, and this podcast was originally nominally conceived to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who. <laughs> you still get letters from people yes. uh, for, oh, for yes. those episodes of Doctor Who you did. So what's, uh, what's your message to the listening Doctor Who fans out there? Message? That, that was a dog, oh, I yes, think. Yes. <laughs> he didn't suddenly turn. No, 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 no. I didn't turn into a, a werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Um... Let me see, what could I say? I think it's a great show. I'm so glad it was revived, because I know it nearly died for good at one point, due to certain decisions being made elsewhere. And I think, because it keeps... There's no limit to what it could be about. That's one of the things. Some of the subjects are really quite... um, What's the word? Esoteric, but they seem to manage to do a job that can interest somebody who's fairly intellectual and a small child at the same time. How do you do that? It's well worth going on for a bit longer, I'd say. Yes, music to our ears, <laughs> Nicholas McArdle, thank you very much. And thank you. Great. I hope that was right for you. That was great. See you next My thanks to Nick, what a lovely fellow. Uh, His charity is, and you can find it, the Royal Surrey Hospital, which has a cancer care unit, but it's got its own charitable fund, so uh, royalsurrey.nhs.uk, royalsurrey.nhs.uk, and there is a fundraising tag, that's forward slash fundraising dash four forward slash... I don't know why that is. That's just what's in the menu bar, but you should be able to find it. You're probably more efficient than I am. Uh, That will take you to a link, which is to a a Virgin Money giving page, the Royal Surrey County Hospital Charitable Fund, which is on the Virgin Money Giving page, which is uk.virginmoneygiving.com as an alternative and see if you can find uh, Royal Surrey Hospital Charitable Fund. So hopefully... One of those two sets of instructions will lead you to the right place, and if you could donate, that would be lovely. There is another Who's Round at the same time next week. My thanks to Oliver Crocker for putting me in touch with Nick. Uh, I'm always dependent on uh, a sort of network of people who say, oh, do you know so-and-so? And And, uh, as a result, I usually do. Um, Stay, keep uh, keep listening. Thanks for doing so, and until next time, ta-ta. Oh, but before I forget, you will not have long to listen to Grand Designs of the Third Kind, my Radio 4 play, which is on iPlayer. It was on at 2.15pm on the 4th of September. Uh, Please have a listen to that. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, The Eighth Doctor, The Time War, Volume 1. Welcome aboard the space cruiser Theseus. We're on a cruise liner. But there's no glass. That's space out there. Please have your tickets and boarding passes ready. Why aren't we dead? Because I doubt they would sell many tickets for the cruise if it killed people. Sensors indicate the enemy TARDIS we have pursued. Best 
quiet. I obey. This feels different somehow. Doctor, we're on holiday, remember? Ripples are becoming waves crashing onto the shore. Meaning? That something wicked this way comes. Big finish. We love stories.